Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I'm your host, Max Bowen. Picture this, you're cleaning out the home of a relative who's passed. When you find a scrapbook and the message, please finish this story. What's your answer? For author G.S. Borman, the answer is yes, and we all benefit with the new book, One April After the War. In this episode, G.S. and I talk about the discovery and what led them to complete the story, a gripping historical adventure set right after the Civil War. We're introduced to the origins of the Secret Service, a much different organization than the one we know today. We also learn about the main characters, Agents Merritt and Argent and Mary Warner, and the work that went into creating them. Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to the show. Once again, so thankful that you're joining me here today. And uh, for this episode, well, we are diving into one of my favorite things, and that is history. I love history, particularly the Civil War. There's probably some meaning there. I'm not going to go into it right now, but I love the Civil War. I love reading about the stories and the battles and the people there. And my next guest, her debut book, that's right, One April After the War, is set right at the aftermath of the Civil War, and it's it's just really amazing historical fiction. Author G.S. Borman joins me. G.S., welcome to the show. It is so cool to have you here. Thank you so much. That was a very gracious introduction. Oh, thank you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> now, we're definitely going to be diving deep into this story, but before we get into that, G.S. Borman is actually the name of your great uncle, who had uh, passed away sometime prior, and going through his things, you found a kind of a scrapbook of like just notes and pictures with a message, please finish the story, which is such an amazing thing. Like that, I mean, this is something like out of like a thriller novel or like a crime noir movie. It's just like the the mystery and the collection and do you go on the journey? And of course you did. Um, but tell me about, but tell me how you sort of came upon this scrapbook and what did you find inside it? Well, that's an even more interesting story. My mother was raised by a couple near Bloomfield, Bardstown, Kentucky. They had a farm and it was one of the oldest houses at the time in Kentucky. And uh, there was um, a a push to preserve that house, but there just was no money for it. Now it's, it's owned by just a regular family and they've taken off the facade so it doesn't look like it did. But um, this woman, she raised my mother, but never said she was her daughter. And uh, it's, that in itself is just a really weird mystery. No one wants to talk about it. So when she passed away, it fell to my mom and her brother to go through everything. And it was amazing. It was like Christmas. You go up in the attic, in the attic of this old farmhouse, and deeds from 1790 are up there, just sitting in a box. And it, and it follows the um, ownership of this one piece of land, several hundred acres, all through two centuries. And that was really cool. And then um, found all these old books and old, old photographs from, you know, the Sionotype days. And, um, but none of them had names to them. And then I found a photograph that if I was wearing that dress, it would be me. It was an amazing likeness of me in 1890, I think it was. 
But uh, so just there's a, a whole lot of just little knickknacky stuff that really had no value, but it was just cool because it was so old and you knew so, you know, certain people you knew had touched it over the years. So that's where a lot of that came from. And uh, the pocket watch was my grandfather's railroad pocket watch. So I put that in the story. Yeah, he, he used to work for the LNN, the Louisville and Nashville. So railroads are kind of in my family and I've heard them for my whole life. There's a train that runs through here, not too far from here. You hear it whistle any, any time of the day. It's just a cool sound. I love it. So that's where I got my love for the railroads. And, and I have all these, uh, these little heirlooms. Like I said, it's nothing special. It's not a, you know, Renoir painting or anything, but it's just things that have been handed down from generation to generation. So you're going through these things, you find your uncle's scrapbook and the message, please finish the story. What made you say, okay, I'm going to do this? I didn't originally. Um, <laughs> when we went through, <laughs> when, well, that, she died when I was in high school, I mm. think. And, you know, life happens. You go to school, you go to college, you get married. And I, I loved that stuff from house to house and just knew it was there. And uh, after my own two children grew up and they didn't need me anymore. And I just started going through things again and just started piecing things together. And, uh, you know, embellishing where it needed, where gaps were, you fill in the gaps. And, uh, and I really did a lot of research about the time period and read the newspapers from the time so I could match up my fictional characters with the historical era. That sounds like so much fun because I love old newspapers. I love like the way that they're laid out, the fonts and the stories there. How much research did you have to do to get a good story together before you could actually begin writing this thing? I did this for years in between homeschooling my girls and, uh, you know, driving them to practices and piano lessons and this and that. And so it was very piecemeal. It's hard to say, but I would say a good year just going through the newspapers because I get distracted. I'll be looking for the 15th amendment, anything on the 15th amendment in the Louisville newspapers. And then I'll see something about uh, a circus that came to town. And then I would get distracted researching about circuses and how they were transporting animals at the time and what kind of animals were there. I would just, anything would distract me and I'd have to go back. Okay. I was doing the 15th amendment, have to go back to that. So but, the, you know, the things, the little things that distract you are, th I think, the things that give real texture to the story to oh. prove that it really did seem like did happen. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, like research, I think, is the best slash worst part of writing a book. Best because it's so cool to learn all these new things. Worst because you'll realize, oh, wait, I just spent like four and a half months researching, you know, <laughs> ran, like insert random subject and I've gotten nothing else done. Wow. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Or you, you, you research something for three weeks and you might get one sentence out of it, but it's a really good sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it better be one, um, uh, one, a hell of a sentence for three weeks of research right. to do this. <laughs> so how much did you have to do to kind of fill in the blanks here? I mean, was the book like partially or halfway complete? Oh no, it was just, uh, notes jotted down here and there oh. and like I said I've, I I did a lot of filling in and uh you know but I feel like I 
by the time I got to the end of it, it matched up with the notes. Has your family had the chance to check out the book? I imagine there must be a lot of like personal connections here. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of shy about letting my family see what I do. Sure, um, sure. <laughs> so so was it was it kind of widely known that your relative had this had this thing in their attic and that it was like sort of waiting to be found? No. Um my dad gave a lot to me because I think he knew that I just really relished these old things mm -hmm. and that I would keep them. And the same way I have two daughters and I love them both, but I know my older daughter would cherish these things as much as I would and would never sell them or let them go into disrepair or anything like that. Oh no. So, so I don't know that anybody else was all that interested in these things. Something like this, I gotta say, if if I found it, I would be so I'd be so thrilled because it's it's such like a such like a doorway to the life back then in such a different way. Oh um, yeah. yeah. What did you learn about life during the Civil War that you didn't know already? I mean imagine like a lot of like like probably a lot of us you probably study this in you know high school and so forth. But what well, kind of new things did you learn doing research? Um, I think my favorite thing that I researched was train technology. And I read tons on that. I've read oh, four or five books on the B&O Railroad. That's my favorite railroad. Um, and then I found uh, some really good books on train technology. One, uh, one was on engines and one was on passenger cars. And that was really a lot of fun to integrate all that into the narrative, especially all the problems they have, you know, bent axles and broken axles and journey boxes that are journal boxes that get overheated. And um, something called the prize package boy that everyone hated, but they rode up and down the rails and they would sell candy and cigarettes and little boxes of perfume and things. And they would say, oh, if you buy this, there's a gem inside. And uh, so some states would call that betting and you couldn't do that. And other states would say you could do it, but you have to have a license. Just a lot of little bitty things about trains alone that took a lot of time just because I was interested in it. <laughs> it it's like uh, months later, I, oh, wow, I should probably actually write something eventually. <laughs> well, I I said, I got a couple of good sentences out of that. Then, hey, well, and I think it's, it's really also about painting the picture because especially where this is history, this has already happened, it's real life. You got to be as complete as possible because someone is always going to find the mistakes every time. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm sure of that. And I'm sure there are plenty in there. I did my best, but, uh, you know, I did what I could with what I had. <laughs> And, you know, having begun reading this thing, you are doing a really, really amazing job. Um, I want to ask about the cover art because uh, we'll post this with the episode, folks. But who did the cover art? Because it is so cool. It is. And that's, uh, I asked him how to say his name because it's, it's got an odd spelling. His name is Richard LeJonas. That's the closest I can come. Or he said, that's the closest you'll come to it. <laughs> Fair um, enough. It's L-J-O-E-N-E-S. Okay. And he did this awesome calendar. I don't know if you got the calendar. I got the calendar. I got the calendar. That so so that's the other cool thing about this, folks, is that this book takes place over the course of a month. And weirdly enough, the current April that we're going into right now actually matches up day for day with the April that this book takes place in. 
yes, that was that was unintended, but I loved it. And I'm yeah. sorry I didn't see that until January, I think. I found <laughs> out I wanted to know when Easter was this year because Easter's my favorite uh, holiday. And I looked it up and it said April 17th. I'm like, oh my God, it was April 17th in 1872. And then I looked and it starts on a Friday like it did in April 1870. The full moon is almost the exact same day. So I thought, you know, I just cannot miss this marketing hook. It's just too oh, good. It's perfect. Like, like you, you have to do this. Like, you call the publisher and say, "So, you know how we're gonna, we're, uh, you know, you know how we were gonna release in January? Change of plans. We're doing this in April instead." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I hope, uh, I hope people enjoy following it along day by day. Yeah. So, so each chapter is a different day of the month, right? Right. Wow. So chapter one is April Fools. And then, you know, uh, chapter 17 is Easter, like it is here. So it works out, worked yeah. out. All right. So let's talk story now. So this book focuses on two Secret Service agents, agents Merritt and, and Argent, who are tasked by President Ulysses S. Grant to uh, convince a Miss Warner to return to them to Washington. And this is going from Kentucky, which is actually your home state, all the way to D.C. It's, a, it's, a, it's an 800-mile train ride, um, right. I'm, I'm sure, Nothing happens. It's a nice, smooth ride. Everyone has a good time. No, I'm, I'm sure there's all, there's all kinds of calamity. <laughs> um, I want to ask first about the, about the, about the Secret Service during the time of the, of the Civil War. Of course, we all know them now. They're basically the president's bodyguards. But what was the Secret Service like back then? Um, it started the day Lincoln was assassinated. It was the last thing, according to anecdotes that I've read, it was the last thing he signed before he went to Ford's Theater. Someone had been saying we need to protect the new national currency that came to be during the Civil War because counterfeiters were just having a heyday. So he said, yes, go ahead and get that started. He signed the piece of paper that would start the Secret Service. But then there became this problem that it didn't go through the legislature, so it wasn't a real department. They kind of had that problem going on. Um, so that happens in 1865, and the first chief of that division was Colonel Wood, and he was uh, something of a character. He believed that to catch a, a criminal, you had to hire a criminal. So he hired other counterfeiters to catch counterfeiters, and then they couldn't keep their hands out of the cookie jar. So in 18... 69, I think, Colonel Whitley is hired and he fires everybody and starts over. And his idea for a secret servant operative, they were called at the time, is well-educated men, middle-class men, men you could count on, not thieves, not crooks. So he's trying to change the um, reputation of the service, which is really taking a beating. So that's where we are in 1870. It's been in service for five years. It's already taken some hits for its reputation. Um, but what's amazing is they only had, I think, 20 or so operatives for the whole nation. And those men, they could hire junior operatives. They could hire help. You know, they got a, a stipend or whatever, and they could spend it on help in different cities. But, you know, even to cover out West, they only had 20 people, 20 full-time people. I think it's kind of ironic that the last thing Lincoln signs is the thing that if he had it would have actually saved his life. 
Yeah, you're right. Well, they didn't they didn't start doing the president until McKinley. Okay. Until I after you. the McKinley assassination. Oh. But they did they did tax frauds, sugar frauds, uh, illicit uh, distilling. They did anything that um, compromised the federal government's income. So I if you messed with the federal that. government, I didn't either. And that was another thing I spent a lot of time researching. <laughs> I found a book. My younger daughter, we had watched a show, and the Secret Service was mentioned to that. And she said, well, what does the Secret Service do? And I was like, you. I said, they protect the president. Mm-hmm. So she went to school the next day, and I started researching. It turns out their original mission was to protect the national economy or the national uh, currency, rather. But then they got so good at it that in 1870, the Department of Justice starts. They started borrowing from the Secret Service their agents because they were so good at detection, at doing detective services. So they were hired out a whole lot to the other departments in the national government. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, they, they were given the uh, protection of the president after the McKinley assassination and I think 1911, but don't quote me on that. I think. <laughs> wow, so so cool. Just like learn yes, all, really all these different things. Yeah, all it right. is interesting. All right, uh, tell us about our two main characters, Agents Merritt and Argent. Okay, so um, they meet in the Civil War. Argent um had started medical studies he was expected to follow his father and his two uncles into uh the medical arts and he had the intelligence and he even had the uh the desire but during the civil war he just gets tired of all the human destruction that he sees and so he meets Merritt when Merritt comes into the camp one day he's carrying an injured man he drops him down and he says, bring this man around. And he said, I can't help this guy. You need to take him to the other tent. And he goes, I don't want to help him. I need to talk to him. He's a spy. After Merritt gets the information he needs, he instinctively knows that Argent isn't happy and that Argent could possibly be better used elsewhere. So he convinces him to join what was still called the Secret Service in the Union Army, but it was not the counterfeit Secret Service. It was the intelligence gathering. Um, so that's where they met. And then after the war, they got jobs together at the Secret Service. I definitely see this as kind of like a men in black sort of thing, like Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, very much like the odd couple kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I I really enjoyed writing those two. And I was worried about it because they're men. And women typically don't write men well, like men typically don't write women well. But I enjoyed writing those two guys. It was fun. I think I did a better job with them than I did uh, Lally or M. (laughs) (laughs) Who's your favorite out of those two? Merritt. (laughs) He reminds me of my brother, Richard. Oh, cool. He's just always got this private amusement. Yeah, he's this private privately amused about everything you know and he doesn't seem to take everything or he doesn't seem to take anything seriously although he he does eventually Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right so these two are tasked with um escorting a mary warner across the country and uh do they really know what mary's deal is or do they just know take her from a to b 
that's exactly how they see it. You know, it's they're in between two counterfeiting cases. The reason they got this assignment was simply they were close to Kentucky. They were in Cincinnati. So they were kind of tapped to do this. And it was supposed to just maybe be a week, maybe two, because at the time to go 800 miles by train should have been a three-day trip. So they're like, oh, let, we'll, we'll go get her. We'll, we'll whisk her up to Washington, hang around, bring her back, we're done. And it was literally supposed to be get her from eight, point A to point B. But when they get to the farm and they were led to believe that Mary Warner was her mother, Mrs. Mary Warner, and they get there and it's not. They thought it would be an older woman, a widow. And when they get to the farm, it's not. It's, it's her daughter, a totally different situation. Um, and then, you know, part of the problem is convincing her to go. She does not want to go. So they spend three days convincing her, you know, you need to go. President Grant is not going to say, ask us to uh, accept anything but yes from you. So, um, and then that's when everything that can go wrong pretty much does go wrong on the trip. And that's why it takes a month and not three days. <laughs> They're not on the train a whole month, but it takes them a month to get there. Ah, okay. So who is Mary Warner? No spoilers now, because we want people to, to uh, read the book, but who is Mary Warner? And what would you say her overall role in the story is? I had really wanted to use her to portray people who are different and have a, and struggle to fit in. Um, and that these two men see that she struggles with that and they don't hold it against her. Um, you know, they're completely at sea as to how to understand her, but they want to, they are sympathetic that she is struggling with just the simplest social uh, interactions. It's, she grew up on a farm. She is educated in her, you know, they, they went to school in Louisville, but she lived a, an isolated life. Part of it was because she was on a, a farm and part is because she preferred it that way. And so going to Washington City was a real trial for her. How would you describe how Mary gets along with the agents? Are they like best friends immediately or is there a lot of just like bickering back and forth? Oh God, no, they were not friends. She hated them um, because she hates, she hates President Grant for, and I cannot tell you why, um, so anything to do with President Grant, she immediately hates and detests. Um, but she's not afraid of them. She had uh, six older brothers and was modeled after Commodore Borman's family. Commodore Borman was a, a distant relative and he lived in Martinsburg. That was one of the first towns I researched. And when I came across him, it's one of those things that you come across a little tidbit and like, I was meant to write this story. Commodore Borman is a family member and he lives in Martinsburg, which I'm researching. So I took his family. There were 13 children, seven sons and six daughters. And so that's what I have the Warner family modeled after. Hmm. So she has older brothers. She's not afraid of boys. She's not afraid of smarting back to them because that's how she treated her brothers and how they treated her. So it took a long time for them to get her, her trust. And uh, they, they came to like her, to see her as more as, than just an assignment. Hmm. Would you say this book is like a thriller? Is it more of like a mystery story? 
Because it seems like there's this is the kind of thing where a lot is going to happen. Well, there is a lot going on. There are a couple of parallel lines of narrative going on. One of them is um, there seems to be a will of force or force of will that is causing some of the delays along the way, but they don't know who or what that is or what the point of it is. And then it's kind of a psychological thriller because um, Mary Warner is really struggling with mental health and, you know, the stress of being away from home. She's a homebody. She's one of those people that just does not like to leave home. And here's this stress of that going on. Um, she is chronically, she's a, a person who can't sleep. She doesn't sleep well. So one of the things they that Argent does to try and help, and remember he does have some of a medical background, so he feels like he's within his rights to do this. And remember, women really didn't have a right to say no to anybody about anything, but he sneaks chloral hydrate into her drinks every night to help her sleep. She, her chemistry works backwards. <laughs> And it actually made things worse. And the reason I introduced the chloral hydrate was because I had kind of wanted to model Mary Warner after Mary Lincoln. I read a book about the insanity of Mary Lincoln. And this author believed that she was the victim of self-medication. And one of the things that she, she was taking laudanum, she was taking something else for her headaches. She had struck her head and was, had chronic headaches. She had trouble sleeping. She was taking stuff for sleeping and she was washing it all down with wine. And then one of the other things she was taking was chlorohydrate, which was brand new on the market in 1870. And it was supposed to be the miracle drug for people who couldn't sleep. But then they found out that some people, it made matters worse. And uh, they talked to, there was a story about an insane asylum where they were trying to dose the patients to get them to sleep through the night. And one patient just, it didn't work. And they kept giving that patient more and more chloral hydrate. Finally, this poor patient pretty much falls into a stupor and sleeps. And then they get mad because they can't wake this poor woman up the next morning. But she's just full of chloral hydrate. But anyway, that was, a, that was another thing that I had, uh, I had researched a lot. And uh, so that's why she is falling slowly into insanity. She's taking laudanum on her own. She's washing it down with bourbon that she brings from home. They're giving her a drink every night and putting chlorohydrate in it. And it just all kind of bubbles up on the last day of April. Jeez, medicine back in the day was just like giving people drugs, wasn't it? Oh, if you go to the newspapers, there's a drug column. And it would tell you what the drugs were selling for that week. And there was cocaine, chloroform morphine you didn't need a prescription you just went down to the chemist or the druggist and you got it you could get a prescription but you didn't need it it was amazing and it's amazing that america got out of that era at all because everybody was drugging themselves you know but i want to ask about mental health in the 1870s how was this viewed well part of the problem was anytime you did something different that was considered a mental health issue you know, women who talk too much had a mental illness, um, honestly. And it did not take anything to have anyone committed. You could bribe a doctor. 
if you needed to get a relative out of the way, bribe a doctor, they would say, yes, they're insane. And Mary Lincoln, she was definitely struggling with medical issues, but Rob, her son Robert was embarrassed of because she was selling her money inside her petticoats and selling her old dresses up in New York and it embarrassed him. So he wanted to put her away. Um, and she eventually won her freedom herself. But, you know, she said, for now on, everyone's going to think, I think the moon is made of green cheese because I've been in an asylum now. There's no escaping that view of me. But um, it really, it, it didn't take much to be labeled mentally ill in 1870. It didn't take much to be committed to an asylum in 1870. Jeez. <laughs> and so I imagine for Mary, the, the life is, is very hard because, because not only is she, of course, struggling with a mental illness, but also being a woman. That's going to stack the deck really high yes. against her. Yes. And I also considered her as a, what we would call ADD, which back then was... They didn't call it ADD until 1950 or something. And it was hardly recognized as a medical condition until uh, 1900 or something. But back in 1850 or so, it was called moral insanity because whoever had ADD, they couldn't focus. They couldn't make themselves do what they were supposed to do. So it was called moral insanity. And um, there were a couple of doctors that mentioned we noticed this problem, but it's mostly with boys. And that has held true up until recently when they finally said, yeah, girls have the same problem. Um, so she, I wanted to address that, that she had ADD at a time when it was considered a mental illness. And that goes against her too. What? <laughs> what? It was a lot of fun researching ADHD history too geez like, like like so so i'm from salem originally salem mass and of course you know the witch trials where it was so easy yeah. to get anyone burned the stake basically for being <laughs> a witch you, all you have to say you know you know they're a witch that's it that's all you gotta do right good to know that not much changes 200 years oh, I afterwards i know i know well and the thing is i think even back then if, if a, a man had add you know, people might say, God, he's really an odd creature, but that would be as far as it goes. Mm. But, you know, a woman had to conform or risk not having a livelihood. You know, you couldn't go out and get a job like men did. Interestingly enough, one of the few places a woman could get a job was the U.S. Treasury. <laughs> That's the ironic. Department of the Treasury. Because apparent, yeah, apparently women could feel counterfeits by touch that men couldn't feel. But um, so, you know, but if a woman has ADD, you know, then she's not wife material because she can't focus on the housework, focus on all these other things you're supposed to be doing. The diapers aren't washed. I mean, I've had that problem where dirty laundry has sat around for a week. I just could not make myself do it. But anyway, that that was I thought that would be an interesting um, side narrative, if mm. you would. So did you relate a lot to Mary as a character? I've thought about this. Um, I always like to think that her assets, her better qualities are those of my older daughter, because I 
Mary Warner to me looks like my older daughter. She's tall. She's thin. She's got the, the light brown hair. The, it's thick, long. That's my daughter. The only difference is my daughter has these big China blue eyes. And I changed that because I'm tired of blue eyed heroines. So <laughs> I did change your eyes. But like Mary Warner can draw like a picture. A camera takes a picture. She plays the piano by ear. She likes, uh, she's good at learning languages. Um, she's a voracious reader, remembers everything. Those are all the things my daughter can do. Hmm. Her bad qualities are mine. Um, you know, she's quick to anger. She it can even curse at times, and I, I can curse. <laughs> um, she, she's not patient for other people who can't keep up with her. You know, she tends to be the smarter one in the room, even among men, and she gets aggravated if they can't follow what she's saying. Mm. Um, one thing, one bad quality that she has that my daughter does share, she doesn't like to be interrupted. If she's staring off into space dreaming and you call her name, she does not like to be bothered. <laughs> and she'll just stare at you. But um, anyway, so that's how I feel related to Mary Warner. Okay. As I like uh, exploring the problems she has in relationships with other people. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier about kind of getting away from some qualities of certain heroines, and certainly there are definitely some kind of stereotypes. What are some of the other things that you try to avoid with Mary's character? I don't want her to come across as some iconoclast where, you know, she's going to change society, you know, that she's, I don't see her that way. I don't want her to be that way. I don't want her to be overly beautiful because not all women are models. You know, most of us are regular looking people and that's what I wanted her to be. I, um, I, I did not want, you know, she does like to do things her own way, but it's more because she just, frankly, in some cases, too lazy to conform. And in other cases, she just doesn't see the point. So again, I didn't want her to be a, a heroine where she saves the day or she makes everyone see the error of their ways. You know, I didn't want her to be that kind of heroine. I want her to be a heroine that she did the best she could with what she had. And sometimes it works out. All right. So we mentioned earlier that uh, this takes place right after the close of the Civil War. Does what's going on in the world in the country at that time kind of factor into the overall story of the book? Well, Grant's administration had a lot of problems. They had a lot of scandals. And um, her relationship with Grant, so that comes in where, again, she should be a, a staunch supporter just because she knows him. But she's willing to say, yeah, there's a lot going on in his administration that I disapprove of, and I think he could do better. And that was not something she should be saying or even thinking. You know, she's supposed to be the woman behind the man kind of thing. Mm. Um, but there is a lot going on about the ex-slaves and how they're having to um, find the, their footing in this new world. Louisville wasn't so bad towards slaves until after the Civil War. If you read the newspapers, um, occasionally Black people could 
eat in the same restaurant as white people. But after the war, that's when they lowered the boom. When they became free, that's when everything they could do to keep them down was done. And in fact, I didn't know this. There was an incident on um, Louisville streetcars that was kind of like Rosa Parks 100 years ahead of time, where some Black men refused to get off the streetcars, even though there was a new law that said they had to sit in the back or they had to be on a separate car. Um, so that was interesting. You know, the whole, uh, and Mary's Warner's um, neighbors happens to be a Black family that lived, that lives on a smaller farm next door. And so I try to explore what it is like to be Black, which is next to impossible because how can you? <laughs> know what that is. Um, but I do my best. I do my best to portray them as just regular human beings and, uh, you know, how they're dealing with all the changes. But they're dealing with it kind of off to the side because they're on a farm. They don't go into the city too much, which is where all the problems are, at least in Kentucky. I can't swear to Georgia or Alabama or any of those other places. Given the, that a good chunk of the book takes place in your home state. How is that to write? I love it. Um, my daughter and I talk all the time. You know, we feel like Kentucky gets short shrift. People have, uh, it, you know, their images of what it is to be in Kentucky. Um, and Kentucky was a border state, which I think kind of gives Kentucky an identity crisis. And that's what Mary Warner is struggling with. So I, I kind of equate the two. They're both going through the same thing. I mean, in fact, Kentucky, after the Civil War, the famous saying is that Kentucky joined the Confederacy after the war. That was when Kentucky really started adopting all these Confederate ideals. They weren't like that before the war. And so I think Kentucky, I think there's a lot of research to do about Kentucky as a border state that hasn't been done yet. And we had, we had a union governor and a Confederate governor at the same time in Kentucky. We had two separate governments during the Civil War at one point. Ooh. And there's not a whole lot of research out there about it. And I think that's a shame. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, so this is your debut novel, but I'm curious if you have um, a strong writing background that kind of led up to this. No, the most I'd ever written was term papers. I, my, my degree is in English, so mm -hmm. you know I, I do know how to read critically, but I think the most I've ever written was a 15-page term paper. And when I started writing this, the thing I was worried the most about was dialogue. I'd never written dialogue, and I was worried that I would really tank at that. I hope I didn't. <laughs> That's that. No, I don't have any writing background. I'm wow. not a journalist or anything that's that surprises me because you re you you wrote this really well uh did you have like a writing coach well, or a book group that you could kind of bounce ideas off of no i wish i had had the money the funds to hire an editor because even now i keep finding a mistake here and they're like how did i miss that <laughs> but uh yeah I, I, that's one thing I, if i uh, do well with these books my next book i will hire an editor mm. to help me out with that the I, I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I usually take from these discussions is hire an editor because yeah. you're not going to catch everything. It's not. It's not. It's especially after you read it again and again, you just want to get it done. 
you don't you're, you're going to gloss over things exactly. you're gonna miss things so it's really it's it's definitely that's worth exact, investment yeah that's exactly right I, I, when you write it you know what's coming because you wrote it so you're not really paying attention exactly to your re your writing your own writing yeah but anyway yeah you're right yeah given the strong family connection were you nervous about publishing this you know given that at some point some of your friends and family would read it and yes. be like hey wait a minute this is your oh Yes. Yes. I'm a very private person. Mm -hmm. um, and it took me a long time to think about publishing it because I thought if I fail, I would like to fail privately. <laughs> and even if I succeed, I would like to succeed privately. But um, I think my brother-in-law has read it. He was kind enough to consent to reading it. I haven't heard what he thought of it yet, but it's a lot to read and he's busy, you know? Hmm. Um, yeah. So we've got, of course, your, the big day is coming up very soon. Release dates right around the corner. Are you nervous? Uh, yeah. I, but I got to tell you, um, the marketing firm that I ended up hiring, they've been great. They've been really good about bolstering my um, confidence and finding people like you to talk to. I've done a lot of written interviews and that's made me think a little bit more critically about what I wrote and what I want to get across. So that's helped a whole lot. And I'll tell you, the cover is great. I just love it. it looks, it's so professional. So it's like, <laughs> if they only pick up the book for the cover, that's a win right there. <laughs> and the cover is such a selling point, I think for any book, you know, I, I've definitely seen books where the covers are like works of art practically. I'm like, yes, I'll buy the book just because the cover look, looks, looks amazing. And there's others I've looked right. at the cover and thought, wow, this cover is, it's crap. I'm not reading the book. Forget about it, you know? <laughs> well, he was such a good guy to work with. He said, send me any pictures you think you would like to have. And I sent him just file after file after file of all these pictures I collected. And he asked me about the book. You know, he wanted to know what was the book about. So he really designed the cover with a real feel for what's inside. And I think that's why it turned out so well. It wasn't just a job. He really wanted to do a, a good cover. You did an amazing cover. I love it, especially towards the bottom of the cover. You have the old like steamship, the legal tender, which is featured right at the beginning yeah. of the book. Yes, yes. That was fun. That was really fun. Was this like a real ship? Yes. Oh. That was a real steamer. Oh, so cool. That was That was what got me started on April for the title and April for the whole format of the book was I was researching uh, what was going on in Cincinnati in, in early 1870. Originally, I was going to start the book in March on a really glorious day in March. I started researching the, the weather and it was miserable for weeks. Cincinnati was flooded. And the legal tender tried to leave two or three days and just couldn't. There was just too much water. And uh, they finally leave in the early mornings of April 1st. And I'm like, well, there it is. That's where I'm going to start. I'm going to, because legal tender has to do with the Secret Service, has to do with national currency. My men are going to start on April 1st on legal tender, go down to Louisville. And then from there, it became a month long book. Perfection. Perfection. Now, I know you've got two more books in the works. Uh, again, no spoilers, but what can you tell us about the two new books? 
the second book is actually the second half of April. Uh, this book goes up till April 17th. I had it as one book originally, but it was just too big. An unknown author, no one's going to pick up a 700 page book. So I was advised to split it. So I did. Um, and then the third book is actually the end of 1870. What I have planned to do is write a book for each year of that decade, 1870 to 1880. But 1870 is taking three books. That's why those three book covers look the same. Mm. It's like a, an opening trilogy. So the book, book two is April 17th through April 30th, plus a few days in May. And then book three starts in June. And that ends out 1870 for those three people. Excellent. Excellent. Well, GS, uh, certainly looking forward to the big day. Best of luck on that. And folks, if you want to learn more, definitely pick up your copy. Thank on you. One April after the war. You go to GSBorman, B-O-A-R-M-A-N.com. You'll find links to purchase. Get it, whether you get it in an ebook or print. Personally, I like print. I'm old school that way. But definitely get your copy when it comes out. More books in the works. If you love history, you'll love this book. And GS, definitely looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you so very much. You're very welcome. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on. Okay, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. Big thanks to GS for joining me, and definitely check out One April After the War. I'm reading it myself, and I love it. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check this show out wherever you find podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. As always, keep those ears open.